0: I was diagnosed with a high severity of ADHD. And from, from that moment as a five-year-old, I was put on the medication. First it was Ritalin, then it was Concerta, then it was Adderall. By the time I was done 15 years later at the age of 20, I was on 86 milligrams of Adderall a day.
1: Sometimes success comes to people because they love what they do and they just work really hard at it. But more often than not, at least in my experience, success comes to people who feel like they're not worthy of being there. They have to do more. They have to earn more. They have to be bigger, better, stronger, so they can finally feel like they're worthy of the circumstances that they're in. It's almost like a survivor's guilt or a who the hell was I to be born into such fortunate circumstances? And I think on some level that becomes the tip of the spear for us feeling like we don't belong in our lives, that's the imposter syndrome, is do I deserve this? Are people going to come kick my door off the hinges and say, you don't you don't deserve to be here. You're out of here, buddy. You don't know what you're talking about. And today's conversation really gets into the surprising link between that sensation or that belief and potentially a lack of gratitude and how learning gratitude practices can help us unwind that sense of being an imposter in our own lives and to really allow ourselves the experience to go into the heart and experience some of that healing. So uh, I hope you really enjoy this episode. It's pretty pretty interesting one for me. Welcome to The Dream Beyond. I'm your host, Nick Tarasio. I'm a CEO, musician, and overall seeker of truth, inspiration, and simply put, how to live the most fulfilling life possible. Growing up surrounded by extremely wealthy and successful people gave me unique and unfiltered perspectives of those who have seemingly made it. And on The Dream Beyond, we're letting you in on what it really takes to achieve your dreams, what happens when it turns out your destination isn't the promised land you were expecting? And how to process the lessons from your past while mapping a course to true fulfillment. Let's get started. Hey guys, I'm here with Wall Street Journal best-selling author of Gratitude Through Hard Times and Gratitude Impasta. And Recognized as the Gratitude Guru by USA Today, and he's a founding member of Rolling Stone Magazine's Culture Council. And he's part of the executive uh, board member, Uh, he's an executive board member at Fast Company Magazine, founder of the 747 Gratitude Experience, a proven framework enhancing client team relationships. He's worked with over 500,000 workplace connections with that work. Uh, And please welcome my buddy, Chris Shembra. Dude, you're amazing, so glad to have you here. Nick, I am just so, so, so tremendous joy
0: to be here. You know, I find joy in watching your success the way you've grown and evolved as a leader, as an owner, as a, as, 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 a, as a friend through these years. It's been
1: a wonderful journey, and I'm excited to see this chapter of your evolution. Man, I appreciate that. And yeah, so for background, Chris and I, for a short time, were in a men's group together and just got to go super deep. So there's people that, you know, again, it's not the quantity of time, it's the quality. And I would say with you, Chris, it's always been amazing moments And uh, similarly, just happy to celebrate all your successes and also a chance to catch up uh, with everyone else just watching along for the ride. So (laughs) uh, You guys are seeing our just friend to friend catch up. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So hopefully people get a kick out of that. But let's go way back because, again, I I just think you're such an incredible storyteller. And uh, I wanted to start off with when you were little, what did you dream you'd be when you grew up? Whoa. When I was little, what did I dream
0: I would be when I grew up? Nick, here's a vulnerable answer to that question. I didn't dream. Wow. So, God, I got tears coming to my eyes. Um, When I was five, I was very rambunctious. I was very creative. I had a lot of energy even more energy than you see now as a 36-year-old in New York City. I wanted to do everything under the sun. And when the community, when doctors, when my parents started noticing that, that I I, I couldn't be kept quiet, uh, I was liable to do anything. Anything might happen. It was about the same time that uh, now a friend of mine, Ned Halliwell, had just published his groundbreaking book, Driven to Distraction. And he was introducing really the concepts of ADHD into the world. And sure enough, I went to those doctors every Saturday up in Charleston, South Carolina, and I was diagnosed with a a high severity of ADHD. And from from that moment as a five-year-old, I was put on the medication. First it was Ritalin, then it was Concerta, then it was Adderall. By the time I was done, 15 years later, at the age of 20, I was on 86 milligrams of Adderall a day. Now, a lot of you listening probably know people that might take 5 milligrams to stay up all night to cram for a a last-minute test. I was on 86 a day. And as a result of those amphetamines, between the age of 5 and between the age of 20, not only do I not remember most of it, it's a big black hole of my memory, but I also didn't dream. The medicine robbed me of dreams of my future. It was really good at keeping me in the present, helping me be efficient and linear and logical and organized, but I wasn't authentically dreaming
1: myself, so I don't have a good answer to that. How would you describe that in the presence of that? Like, do you even recall what it was like to be in the experience of a mind that didn't form dreams or fantasies of what could be or imagine things that weren't yet? I don't remember knowing any
0: better. I don't remember questioning whether any of this was meant to be or was different than what other people were going through. It was just my reality. And I think for so many people that are listening to this podcast, you probably look at your own life and realize, gosh, I didn't know I needed more in my life or that I needed less in my life until years later, connecting the dots backwards and looking at all the patterns, uh, you know, along the way. And, and so I, I, I don't think that I had the clarity of mind to say, this ain't right, and this might screw me up for a little bit.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, I, I relate to that very much. I think, uh, my mind was always a little different growing up and, uh, I've struggled oddly enough, uh, it must've been two months ago, I was sitting in Europe in one of the most beautiful settings on an island called Icaria, the island that was named after where Icarus apparently fell into the waters. And I was like, you know, I know I'm here. Like in my head, I know I'm on this beautiful island. And I know I'm having a good time, but I don't feel it. Like I find that it's like the word gratitude is a beautiful word. I could explain the concept, but I don't think I actually can feel gratitude in my body. And so a lot of my curiosity about today too is like, you know, how do we really get this stuff to to reconcile in our nervous system, right? It's not just the ideas and what most of us live in our heads. But to that point, it's like, so here you are, you had 15 of these incredibly seminal years where you couldn't dream about the future. How do you think that informed who you ultimately became?
0: Yeah, great question. I think it gave me the knowledge. It gave me, it gave my body the knowledge of what it feels like To not, yeah, not remember, yearn for connection, feel like I was different, whatever, you know. Alongside the ADHD medicine that they gave me, they also put me in my own special room during classes. They gave me my own special testing rooms during testing. And I did a lot of different things different. And I internalized that convincing myself that I was either the last one called to the party or my invite was always lost in the mail and woe is me and trauma, trauma, trauma and blah, blah, blah. So it gave me this narrative that I attached myself to um, in the years after I got off the medicine. I think it's kind of weird that I attached myself to the narrative that like I was different. I had bigger trauma than others. I have this 15-year memory block. And I went through this like really entitled period of, woe is me, I deserve special treatment, I'm the victim here. And once I started to realize that I was doing that, I realized that I was doing things all wrong and that I was actually not... uh, that special, not that unique. And I had more in common than I had differences with others. And so this whole thinking back of the memory loss and the entitlement afterwards just gave me a, a, a big dose of perspective, of feeling, of emotions that I could latch onto when I'm sitting on the beach and life looks perfect, but I'm not feeling it inside my heart. And so I have a memory bank of emotion, of shame, of guilt, of entitlement, of all these things that I can go back to in order to remind myself I am capable of feeling the emotions I'm supposed to feel in life.
1: Yeah, it's it's beautiful to go to the dark place and experience the full range of what's possible and get that context that you've given yourself. And, and again, like that curiosity to me goes to so interesting that a person who couldn't really Feel what it was like to just be there in that moment has become the, the, the gratitude guru you know what I have
0: this burning desire on my heart to make sure that others never feel the way I once felt in my life right whatever the combination of uh... oh by the way my parents were fantastic I grew up in the idyllic community. I had a great on paper childhood and the fact that I was just screaming on the inside, I was yearning to be seen. I was feeling lonely at many times. I was scared to speak out I was doing all these things the the, the fact that I felt that way in my life means I'm so committed to making sure, Nobody feels that way themselves, and that's why we dedicate our entire lives to helping people create meaningful moments of human connection so they feel a little bit less alone, a little bit less different, and a genuine sense of belonging. And so I think I needed to go through everything that I've ever been through in order to end up in this exact seat on this podcast here today doing the work that I love. By the way, the work that I question every single day. (laughs) And that's part of the beauty of it.
1: Yeah. Well, that's great because we're going to dive right in. I mean, (laughs) I have so many questions about gratitude, but that's what people know you predominantly for is you're the gratitude guy. And uh, I want to go into the darkness a little bit because when I saw your last email come through and I saw one little line where you mentioned imposter syndrome, I'm like, oh, shit, man. Like, it's just, that's the thing. That's the thing is like, I just don't want anyone to just rip the mask off of me and say like, there you really are. Terrifying. It's terrifying. And I I wonder if in some ways, you know, I know a lot of people feel it. And again, I don't want to think I'm so special with it or maybe that you're so special with it. Um, But I imagine that for people that had that other experience as a child, always feeling like other, it kind of reinforced it. And it made it like a, to this day, I will be in a room full of people be like, wow, it's interesting. Everyone else seems really connected. And I feel like I'm, I'm a placeholder at times. And I'm like, what is that? So I'm curious to know for you, especially as an adult, I mean, you're just around contra- like constantly interesting people doing constantly interesting stuff. Uh, how has imposter syndrome showed up in your life?
0: Yeah, gosh, golly, it, it runs rampant. You know, it's. I think imposter syndrome is something that plagues me almost every day, even though I have a few good tactical solutions for it. Um, I think it's like. Uh, I think it's like ninety percent of my day is imposter syndrome. And by the way, you know, I I should probably even look up what the the uh, the clinical definition of imposter syndrome is. Um, It's a behavioral health phenomenon described as having self-doubt of intellect, skills, or accomplishments among high-achieving individuals. So right there, um, there's two, two lines that summarize imposter syndrome in my life. Comparison is the thief of joy. Envy is the ulcer of the soul. So often in life, we compare what we see out on social media, and the accomplishments of these highly successful individuals, we compare them to our own uh, journey. We compare our worst human highlights or lowlights to other people's once-in-a-lifetime human highlights. Right? Someone shares, you know, a big win on social media. Uh, you're only getting one specific glimpse of their life, yet you compare your entire life to those things. And so when you surround yourself, I mean, it's kind of a funny thing. People say your net worth is your net. Your network is your net worth. So surround yourself by five successful individuals and you will be the sixth successful individual. But at the same time saying, how do you not compare their successes to yours? Um, So you know, in my life, I am a I'm a keynote speaker. I am a experience facilitator. I'm an author, I'm a thought leader. Yet the majority of the people that I surround myself with are founders and CEOs of publicly traded or mid-market big companies. These are my friends, these are my mentors. They've got billions in the bank. They got everything that like anybody could ever want on paper, right? So I'm constantly comparing my tiny little non-scalable business to their big scalable monster. And it creates self-doubt, anxiety, uncertainty, overwhelm, all these negative things. And I've luckily found a few simple solutions to them. Um, but, you know, they, they really sidetracked me, uh, on a daily basis. Look, our brains are wired to, we actually process nine bits of negative information for every one bit of positive information. Our brains are wired to do that because it kept us alive thousands of years ago, right? When we're roaming around the world, when we're roaming around the Great Plains, we had to remember, don't eat that berry, don't get eaten by that lion, stay together as a tribe, or you will die. We had to only focus on the negative to stay alive. But our world's a little bit different these days. There's not the threat of death or disease at every corner anymore, so why don't we retrain our brains to appreciate the positive rather than dwell in the negative? My imposter syndrome,
1: I dwell on the negative a lot per day. Mm. So, you you are able to relate to me in a way that that gratitude has some sort of correlation to imposter syndrome. Or there's some sort of connection between the two, and I'm I don't remember exactly how you phrased it, but how does how does your understanding of gratitude relate to imposter syndrome for you?
0: Yeah. So gratitude we define as the the acknowledgement of the value. Or the benefits that you've received from others. Um, so I'll, I'll start with um, one of our hypotheses, which is that, um, you know, imposter syndrome and gratitude can't coexist. Gratitude is the acknowledgement of the benefits you've received from others, gratitude helps you develop humility and a posture of otherness in relation to others. Imposter syndrome is self-doubt, anxiety, very internalized, very self-viewed way of thinking about yourself, right? You're, you're thinking, I suck. I have nothing to offer. I, I, I. Now, that is a very introspective, only considering yourself view of the world gratitude is the acknowledgement of the value you've received from others, that creates a posture of otherness. When you wake up to the benefits that you've received in your life and you give gratitude to the people that have helped you get to where you are today, you acknowledge that they invested something of value into you. Now, if you're walking around saying, I'm a piece of shit, I have no value, I have nothing to offer to the world, I am an imposter. What's that saying about the people that invested great benefits into you? What's that saying about that third grade teacher that bought you your first violin because they saw something in you? What's that saying about that investor who gave you a $400 million Series B who saw a value in you? What's it saying to the person in the subway that held open the door because it looked like they were just a nice person. So a posture of otherness, this humility, this being in relation with others, can solve that imposter, self-directed view. So the second thing of gratitude and imposter syndrome is how we look at ourselves. So gratitude to oneself is a really hard thing really hard to look at your life and say, gosh, I'm filled with great benefits and I've provided great value towards others and I've provided great value to myself and I have a lot of redeeming qualities and I have a lot of really cool things that I'm known for. It's really hard to do that and yet it's really healing To acknowledge the benefits that you've given yourself, the value that you've invested in yourself, the value that you've provided to others. I'm grateful that I showed up to my friend's book launch party because it had a positive benefit on the audience. I'm grateful that I invested into a gym membership because it's provided a positive benefit to my gym membership community. That's gratitude towards self. I'm grateful that I show up to work every day with a burning desire in my heart to have a positive impact on others. That's self-gratitude. So self-gratitude, the more you give it, the more it abolishes self-doubt. When you acknowledge the positive benefits you've given others, you eliminate the self-doubt of not being enough. Um. I'm still struggling on making those links together, but that's the kind of the core hypothesis. See, I think that imposter syndrome is a massive thing of entitlement. Entitlement, yeah, entitlement to me shows up in two ways. Either people are walking around the world with a superiority complex thinking that they're better than others and therefore they deserve special treatment and they are everything, that they are God, and they are the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Like, that's an entitlement attitude. The other way that I think entitlement shows up is when people walk around with a victim mindset, and they think their trauma is bigger than other people's trauma, and therefore the world should show them special attention. They deserve it. I think imposter syndrome fits in that same kind of boat. Imposter syndrome is, I have self-doubt, I have anxieties, I have insecurities, and that's what makes me different than you. Imposter syndrome, without empathizing that other people might have imposter syndrome, creates disconnect, creates entitlement. When you have imposter syndrome, one of the ways of getting out of it is to actually just talk about it with others who are going through similar imposter syndromes, and you'll realize you're not alone and you actually have a massive amount of things in common with others.
1: Right. So let's back up. You said some things here that I'm like, I'm, I'm really trying to process some of this stuff because there's a lot there. This idea of entitlement, I'm, I, I can track that. I can see that there's entitlement on both sides of the coin there. En- entitlement is...
0: When you're so f- focused on yourself, you don't acknowledge others that have given you benefits, that have picked you up through hard times, that are going through hard times, etc. Right? It's self-focused first posture of otherness. Imposter syndrome is the same way. You're self-focused. You're in a pity party. You're having self-doubt. You're saying, "Woe is me. I don't deserve this. I'm a fake. I'm a fraud." when people around me actually realize who I am, they're going to stop believing in me. They're going to stop investing in me. They're going to stop wanting to hang around me. And so gratitude limits entitlement by A, uh, if you're walking around with a superiority complex, you think you're the shit, you've gotten here alone, you didn't need the help of others. Gratitude reverses that. Gratitude helps you acknowledge you receive benefits from others. You learn from others. You aren't the superior man in the room. You need to learn from people on a daily basis. Gratitude limits entitlement and victim mindset by saying, when you're walking around with a victim mindset and you pretend like your shit, your trauma, is bigger than everybody else's shit or trauma, you're essentially convincing yourself, no one could even come close to providing enough value or benefit to get me out of my victim shit. So I might as well just sit in it forever. But when you acknowledge the benefits and the value you've received from others that have picked you up through hard times, right? that is gratitude. I am grateful for that person for picking me up after my traumatic experience. I'm going to focus on the positive benefits through that gratitude rather than the negative consequences of that traumatic life experience. It picks you up out of that victim
1: mindset and into an attitude of gratitude. So now, 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 I, I want to dive a little bit deeper on this because as you're talking about this, you know, I've heard a lot of people say you can't truly give love to another human until you can love yourself. Correct. Right? So people talk about that building block. Is gratitude the same thing? Yep. Where like yep. you can't just go around throwing gratitude all over the place if you can't feel gratitude for yourself
0: yeah you have to have gratitude. it's it's um, you know, I, we we call it the concentric circles of gratitude. and it's modeled after Heracles' concentric circles of concern from ancient Rome, ancient Greek, uh, a, ancient Greece. Heracles drew a concentric circles a concentric circles of what he thought was cosmopolitanism. What he thought was, You should take, you should have as much concern for people on the exterior of these concentric circles as you have concern for yourself, which is in the interior of the circle. The interior is yourself. The next ring of the circles is your family. Next circle is your friends. Next circle is your coworkers. Next circle is the people that live in your city. The next circle is the people or humanity as a whole. And Heracles said that you should care as much about the people on the external, the exterior of the circles as you do people on the interior of the circles. And so those concentric circles model was invented there. And we have our own concentric circles of gratitude, which is first you have to be grateful for yourself, then take care to give gratitude to the people that close, most closely surround you, your family, and then your friends and then the people in your city and then humanity as a whole acknowledge the positive benefits you've received not only from a farmer in Africa who grew the coffee that you drink every day at the same time as saying gosh I've never thought to thank my mother for all the benefits I've derived from her you got to do both equal
1: now I got a lot to thank my mom for but them. it's but it's uh, I yeah, have of, have... yeah like what you know, I was actually just thinking that and hopefully I will have this conversation with her before this comes out. because uh, then she'll be like, you know, you could have just called me and told me that stuff. But it was more of like as I've as I've grown up, I'm the one kid in the family who doesn't live within, I don't know, a mile or two of their house. All my siblings are within a mile or two. And I've noticed that I've not acknowledged the fact that though I don't show up as much to stuff, like my love is still as much as anybody else who's there more often. And I, I feel how much she would show up anytime I ever need anything. She's there for me. If I, you know, and I've never really expressed that. Like, I know that she would do that for me and I want her to know that I would do that for her too yet in normal life. It's like, I, I just don't, I don't drop in every week cause I'm not a mile or two away. And I've just never said that to her. Um, but it, like, it actually weighs on my heart. I'm like, man, oh man. Like I would hate that she would think that I love her any less because I'm there less. And I don't think I express gratitude very much. The good news
0: is gratitude practiced on an infrequent basis, like what you're saying right here, can be overcome by showing gratitude in the language the recipient likes to authentically receive it.
1: What's an example of that?
0: So I'll give you a story. One day I had... uh, I had a friend named Henry who had provided tremendous benefits in my life. He is a good friend. He's a good leader. He's a good partner. He's a good philanthropic supporter and so many other things for so many people. And I felt like giving him authentic gratitude. And so I called up this artist and I said, Hey, artist, I'm going to give you some snippets of my buddy Henry's life story. Can you engrave it on a special mug that you can send to him that he can drink out of every day? And this artist worked on this mug and he engraved it and he put it in a big wooden box and it came with a video message and he sent it off to Henry and then crickets. I never hear from Henry about the mug again. Oh, we text and DM and talk and all these kind of things. But I never heard back about the mug and one day I called up Henry and I said, Did you ever get the mug? Yes. Did you like it? Yes. Curious, what language do you like to receive gratitude in, Henry? He said, quality time and acts of service. Let me guess, you like giving gifts. And in that moment, I realized, holy cannoli, I've had it all wrong. I tried to give Henry gratitude in the language that was most convenient for me to give. And when the giver gives gratitude in language language that they like to give it in, that can come across selfish, lazy, insincere. Gratitude given in the language Henry would have liked to have received it in, quality time and acts of service, would have been authentically heard and validated and received. So when we talk about the languages of appreciation, I'm talking about Gary Chapman's book, the five love languages. There's this guy, Gary, for all you listeners that haven't read the book, there's this guy, Gary, who found that people like to receive love, gratitude, and appreciation in one of five ways, or in a a variety of five ways. Quality time, acts of service, gifts, physical touch, words of affirmation. And you got to go out of your way to understand how the people you're trying to give authentic gratitude to want to receive it for it to be received authentically. So what I just said about you, Nick, and your mother is that the ratio of time spent or gratitude given or not being nearby can be overcome by giving gratitude in the authentic language that your mother likes to receive it in a meaningful way. And when you nail down that formula, it far outweighs you not
1: living a mile or two away from them. How would you ascertain that? Will you ever just ask, like, you ask a person in this case, would you generally ask someone if you weren't sure? Yeah, just ask them.
0: Hey, person A, uh, let's say, you know, all you, all you leaders that are listening to this call, uh, you got someone on your team you've got someone who's done an outstanding job, whether it's a new intern or the executive assistant that's been with you for 35 years, straight up go and say, hey, person, look, I've received a tremendous amount of value and benefits from you over the last number of time. You know, I specifically wanted to give you gratitude for the time that blank, blank, blank happened. And this is how it felt when You did that blank, blank, blank thing. What language might I best communicate this gratitude in to you? I mean, do you like words of affirmation in the form of a letter? Do you like quality time? Can we go on a vacation together? Can we go volunteer at your favorite local nonprofit? How can I be of service to you and your mission? Ask these people these things. And... Even if they don't answer or don't know the language, they'll be floored that you took the time to empathize and understand how they like to receive that, that love and appreciation. It'll move the world for them. I've seen it happen thousands of times.
1: Amazing. If you, well, I'm going, I mean, try, if you're, I'm going to try that for I sure. Mean, if,
0: you're, if you're a leader on this call, you need to understand, for instance that there is a new science of customer, customer emotions that you have to tap into. Your customers, they want to feel seen, to feel a sense of thrill, of belonging, of recognition, of appreciation. Your customers are demanding more now more than ever. And so when you take the time to empathize and to understand how they like to receive this appreciation... Uh, statistically speaking, they will buy more, promote more, and demonstrate more loyalty.
1: Guaranteed. All right. Well, for anybody who's been following along on video, we completely lost our feed and are starting completely anew a week after we recorded the last piece. So hopefully the continuity is not destroyed. Um, But yeah, so I wanted to shift gears anyway. I mean, Chris, you've shared a lot about imposter syndrome, you know, Gr- gratitude as it relates to imposter syndrome which i've never thought about before uh you, know, you you hit on the five love languages there's a lot of stuff there i'm curious from this space of like you've you've done so much stuff you've achieved a lot of stuff with your life and what do you dream about now what's your dream beyond
0: yeah um Hello, everybody. Good to see y'all again. I hope my internet doesn't cut out again this time, because that would be uh, a two for two, and we'd have to record in person. Um, and God forbid, I had to see Nick in person. No, um, yeah. What is, yeah what what is next for me? You know what i I think what is next for me is to heal my heart. And, um. You know, it's so funny. My whole message of starting our company are, you know, the brief... And I don't, I don't even remember if I told it in the first part, but just as a reiteration to folks, a story that I've told maybe thousands of times on every meeting, on every stage, on every experience, whatever, the story I tell is that in July of 2015... I'd just gotten back from producing a Broadway play in Italy. And I found myself in my studio apartment in Manhattan, lonely and fulfilled, disconnected and secure. Just because a life looked good on paper didn't mean it felt good in the heart. I'd achieved tremendous success pretty early in life. And I kind of woke up due to the amazing trip to Italy. I kind of woke up and realized, this ain't living. This is working. The industry and colleagues and friends had said nice things about what I was doing with my life, but it didn't really feel good on the inside. Just because a life looks good on paper doesn't mean it feels good in the heart. And I'll save the longer story for later, but that's when I started hosting dinner parties and feeding people and cooking pasta sauce, and that's what birthed my company. And you know, the important thing to double click on is just because the life looks good on paper doesn't mean it feels good in the heart. So now here we are. My life looks so damn good on paper. I mean, you read my bio. People can Google me. You can read shit on the internet, whatever. I got fancy titles. Nice things have been said by nice people. Life looks good on paper. But folks... I'll tell you, it doesn't feel good in the heart. And every day I wake up trying to figure out what's wrong with me, what's broken in me, why is my heart so agitated, this shit is real. And so the next chapter for me is to lean into that and start working on my heart more than I've been working on my heart in the past. Because that's the only way that I have a chance of surviving. And if I, if I do the dirty job of surviving, then I might have a potential to have a positive impact on people until the day I die. But I got to take care of my heart first. And I've been neglecting it for a long time. You know, it's interesting. The, uh, actually I'll just stop with that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, <laughs> what a bomb to drop at the end of the episode. It's, uh, it's Obviously, we can make job.
0: this the start of the episode, by the way. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's like, yeah, things are good. Imposter syndrome, gratitude. My heart, though. Like, <laughs> it's. <laughs> I relate I mean, to that. I mean, what you're talking about, it's so funny. I had the experience of being in Italy over the summer. And it was really amazing just to be like, life is so externally incredible. What the hell is going on inside? Like, what is happening that the inside's not mirroring the outside experience at times? And so the concept of healing the heart, I mean, this is, I started out talking about this early in the episode. is like, I, I remember, le- actually, I was in Greece for this when I was in Greece during this European tour, and I remember being like, oh, shit, I can't feel gratitude in my body. I don't know what it feels like. I don't, I mean, I've, I understand rationally what it is in my head. So I, I agree with you, this, like, this connection to the heart. Whether it's a mind-body or a mind-heart connection, uh, I think that's a powerful thing to talk about.
0: Yeah, I, I think it's a. You know, I, I went out to um, went out to coffee a couple days ago with uh, this person named Charlotte, and she brought a philosophy book to to the the coffee chat. And I said, "Why'd you bring your philosophy book?" She said, "Well, it was on my nightstand next to." my actual book that she wanted to bring to show me that she was reading my book. And uh, she just felt like bringing the philosophy book. I said, open up to a random page and read a line for me. And she read a line and it said, no amount of thought can solve a psychological problem. And the way I interpreted that, which is my own personal interpretation, if you're watching this, you have your own interpretation, so don't villainize me. But my interpretation was just talking out our problems, or just intellectualizing our, our problems, or just thinking about our problems. Yeah, that, that does some good, right? But working on the heart, working on the body to solve these big, deep problems from our childhood, our wounds, our inherited trauma, whatever it may be. That's the shit that, that I think is the future of problem solving. Um, right? Mental health has gotten us right, I I kinda look I kinda look at the wellness industry in a series of waves. So first in like the nineteen forties, fifties, sixties, seventies, eighties, whatever, people started paying attention to their physical well being. You saw the rise of uh, you know, dance body fitness and Richard Simmons and Taek, Taekwondo or you know Taibo and all these kind of things. So you saw money going into physical health. And then in the 2000s, people really started taking it seriously about mental health. You see mental health startups, you see a rise in therapy. you see a rise in all these kind of things in the in the head. Well, I think the future of wellness, is social emotional well-being. I think you could go to a therapist and talk it out all you want, but are you really getting down to the what's going on in the heart, going on in the feelings? And so the idea of solving, you know, for that, um, I think I'm really really excited about. And you know, I I go work on the heart through a variety of ways. Um, But I think I've taken off the last couple months from those ways. I go to Reiki energy healers. I go to psychedelic assisted therapy. I go to, I used to go to uh, BDSM, you know, dominatrixes that help me reconnect with my inner child. Like I I, I used to do all this work and I haven't done it in a few months. So I really got to go back out and dive into that.
1: Well, uh, I have not had some of those experiences that you spoke about. Uh, sounds like great advice for anybody who wants to just take a wild ride. I mean, it, it, it is anything that gets you into your body, right? A lot of the things yeah. you spoke about was about getting into your body. Um, the thing that's really interesting and the place that a lot of my attention has gone over the last years I don't know if you're familiar with internal family systems or parts work. No. Have you heard of that before? No. It's ultimately... Um, uh, it's ultimately like a somatic practice. Of, I'm actually going to do another episode on, on this at some point, but uh, <laughs> I, I've been really wanting to talk about parts work. It's a part of my life that I've, strangely enough, not spoken about much. It's something that I, I'm basically a, a coach that's informed in how to use these somatic practices of like get out of your head, let's get into your body, and let's see what the hell's going on. Very much like the body keeps score. If you've ever read that book, mm, right? It's like that's really. Exactly. It's it's in our body. It's not in our head. As you said, like solving at the level of head is probably not going to do much. I did lots of, you know, talk coaching and talk therapy and all that kind of stuff. Didn't move the needle all that much. But between that and the other thing I've recently dove into head first is using lucid dreaming as a way to meet deep aspects of your subconscious or unconscious mind. And so like, again, healing at that level is really interesting learning about it. They say it's, you know, I think like the, the, the thing people would say is like, oh, two years of therapy can be solved in one psychedelic session, which can be solved in about 30 seconds in a lucid dream. It is wild how quick you can just say like, show me what I don't know about myself. Show me the shadow, show me my heart or whatever that is. And I recently had a lucid dream where I was able to meet some of my resistance to relationship and it was totally mind blowing. So I agree with you. It's the answers in the body, the answers in the heart. A lot of this like, you know, uh, Western psychology all up in the head. It's not, it's not getting the results that that we hope for. And I'm not, I'm not, I'm not anti, but.
0: You know, I think there's a need for people to learn skills like uh, emotion regulation, distress tolerance, mindfulness, interpersonal effectiveness. These are four quadrants of skills that I've enjoyed learning recently through a six month cycle of dialectal behavioral therapy. It's a form of therapy that's more like going to a class to learn skills so that when something pops up, you know the skill to use to mitigate the anger or the fear or the shame or the guilt or whatever the emotion is um, without having to redredge dredge old wounds. Um, you know, the, my favorite, my fo- favorite quote uh, from, uh, have you ever read Stephen Pressfield's The War of Art? Yeah, great book fantastic book, one of the, for everybody listening, um, this super, like, short, it's like a 160-page book, but each page is, like, a paragraph, it's, like, super punctual, very readable, with, like, 20,000 reviews on Amazon, you're gonna love it, but it's the idea that we all have these, like, we all have these, like, dreams to, like, write or paint or start a business, or diet, or exercise, or run a marathon. Like, we all have this, like, dream to do something. But what stands in our way of doing that thing is internal resistance. We never start. We never finish. We get distracted. We say, woe is me. We get imposter syndrome, whatever. And he says, resistance loves healing. Resistance knows that the more psychic energy we expend dredging or re-dredging the tired, boring injustices of our personal lives, the less juice we have to do our own work. Which means that like going to talk therapy twice a week and dredging and re-dredging shit from our past might be just distracting us from actually developing the resilience and strength needed to overcome our own internal resistance and dive into creating our best
1: work. Yeah. I mean, I could, I could second that where I think parts work talks about that is, I mean, you think of the fact that so many of our issues are based on the fact that we rationalize our own life. We rationalize the things we don't want to be doing, but we say, here's why it's good. And when you go into talk therapy, there's the chance that your rationalizer is creating these massive narratives that say, let's never go below the neck. We don't want to mess with the stuff that's going down in there we're solving problems we're making changes yeah. and it's like actually we're just running the hamster wheel the jury's out <laughs> yeah
0: yeah. I'm not yeah, well. I'm, I'm not the expert on knowing what's going on I, I'm, I'm very I'm very happy about some new things that are coming out in the land of therapy um, specifically around um, psychedelic assisted therapy to overcome PTSD and eating disorders and all these kind of things my friend Rachel Yehuda runs the Carl Icahn School of Psychedelic Studies at Mount Sinai and she's got a big research center that's doing clinical trials around PTSD and all these wonderful things with MDMA and um, LSD and psilocybin so I'm very excited about things that are coming out soon about psychedelic assisted therapy
1: well, there's three topics that I'll be hitting on hopefully over the next couple of months. We got psychedelics, internal family systems, or some sort of somatic therapy, and of course, we got to talk about lucid dreaming at some point. So, oh yeah, and BDSM assisted therapy. Cool stuff. You're up to so many cool things, and I appreciate you sharing from the heart. Again, I mean, I didn't, I didn't fully acknowledge just how deep you went by saying it's time to heal the heart. But I, I think that's an invitation for all of us. Is a lot of our hearts are hurting. A lot of us are not feeling our feelings, and uh, I appreciate you taking us there in the conversation. Yeah, so again, just kind of going back to what this episode was really all about. I know we, we went on a circuitous path. We even took a brief pause for a week in the middle of it. Uh, so this is a little bit different, uh, what, what the ones we've done before. But man, when it really comes to that imposter syndrome, I think it's coming back to the idea of seeing it as an invitation to go inward and understand why. Is it about a lack of gratitude to self or others? Is it about a a different wound or a deeper wound or belief systems that we took from our childhood? Like what's going on in our body? We're probably not going to solve it at the level of head. And, uh, I hope for anybody that feels that way, just know it's, there's plenty of people that have achieved incredible things. Chris is a great example of them. And still to hear that there are those moments of like, what the hell have I actually done if I can't feel it? So you're not alone if you're having that experience. And uh, the future sounds exciting as well for people that are not just dealing with, hey, I just need to learn gratitude as a tool. But if you are dealing with mental health issues and uh, emotional challenges and trauma, it sounds like the future is quite bright with a lot of these things that are, that are coming out around the psychedelic assisted therapy, different somatic modalities. So uh, yeah, it'll be, a, it'll be a better world soon. And with that, if you're curious to learn more about what Chris is up to, you could, te- you could check out chrisshembra.com. This is Chris's new website. Congrats again on getting the website launched, Chris. And then you can also check out his column on rollingstone.com. We'll put the, uh, the actual link in the show notes. And man, Chris, I could talk to you for days. I am sure you and I are going to sync up very soon in person and recap all kinds of cool stuff.
0: I'm excited, pal. Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah, I appreciate it. I hope you all enjoyed it. Be well. Thank you for listening to The Dream Beyond. I hope that you received whatever message or inspiration you were meant to get from today's episode. I had a great time recording it for you. If you love the show, please take 30 seconds to subscribe rate and review it. That really helps get the word out. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at instagram.com slash linkedin.com slash in slash Nick or youtube.com slash N